The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. Well, good morning, church. Look at this crowd. Look at these chairs all close together. This is kind of cool. First time in a long, long time that we can sit like this. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the elders here at Gospel City Church, and it's my uh, joy and honor to be able to, to preach this morning. Uh, we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Genesis. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a copy of God's Word, whether uh, a, a real copy or a copy on some device, uh, we do have Bibles in the back. Uh, Sue has them. If you would like a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Just throw your hand up in the air and we can pass it to you. And uh, that will be, uh, it's a gift to you. So if you have a Bible at home and you want to take that one home and give to someone else, go ahead. That's, that's perfectly fine. Uh, we're, we're happy to distribute these to you. We are continuing. Uh, we're very near the end. Uh, so this is the uh, penultimate sermon in our Genesis series. And next week we will bring it to full completion. So take your Bibles and open up to the book of Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49 and uh, we're going to go from chapter 49, verse 1, all the way through chapter 50, verse 14. And then the last few verses will be covered next week, as well as kind of an overview of everything we've learned from the book of Genesis. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we started Genesis way back when we actually started as a church. And we went through the first 12 chapters, then we took a break, and then we came back and we did chapter 12 through, what, 25 uh, was that last year? Yeah. And then we took a break and then we came back and now we finished the last half. We kind of blitzed through uh, this last half of Genesis, um, trying to look at the whole story and some of the major themes um, in the story. Uh, Joel, where's Joel? Is this yours? Can I just set it back here? Is it okay? All right. Okay. So Genesis chapter 49, I'm reading from the ESV, so follow along as I read. Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to, your, to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simon and Levi, uh, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they humstrung. They hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be towards Zion, uh, Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. 
he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God, uh, by the God of your father, who will help you? By the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above? Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mam, Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought with the, uh, bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me, made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with them both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a, a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous morning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, 
and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Let's pray. Father, we come to these words that you have given us in your book, the Holy Bible. We come to these words and we read of blessings and we read of, we read of death and we read of mourning. And yet, Father, we also come to this passage and we look forward to the future you have planned for us and that you have planned for, for Israel in, in these words. And Lord, we ask that as we read them and as we study them this morning, that you would encourage us, encourage us with the opportunities that we have to live as blessings in your kingdom, to live as blessings in this world, to point people to you, and Lord, also to, to live in the light of the truth of the future, that there is a future that you have planned for us. God, we know that we are nothing without you. And so we pray this morning as we, as we listen to this message that you would, uh, your spirit would work in us, open our ears, open our hearts, that we may see you and that we may see your son, our Lord and Savior, high and exalted as the, the one true king, the king of kings, and that we may worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Would you bless this time? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me say this before I jump into the introduction. Some of you who are new uh, to GCC in the last couple of years, uh, and you haven't been a part of our physical gathering since before COVID started, uh, we are going to do something after the, the preaching today and after the Lord's Supper that we haven't been able to do in person for two years, which is to gather into really small groups after the sermon and talk about what we've read and heard in the message. And so just want you to be prepared for that, that uh, you would pay attention to what I have to say. <laughs> Not because I have to say it, but because this is the teaching of the word of the Lord. And it will be, a, it will be something that you will be able to participate in uh, as we uh, try to immediately apply the word of God to our lives as we think about what we've heard. Uh, and as we try to take something from this message into uh, our lives. So just keep your ears open and, and uh, be attentive to what the Spirit may be teaching you today. Today we're, we're thinking about this idea of already, not yet. That's how I've titled the sermon, Already, Not Yet. Um, in a theological formation, a, a really rich theological term is the word inaugurated eschatology. It's a really big word, isn't it? Inaugurated eschatology points both to elements relating to the immediate inauguration of God's kingdom in, at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as well as the other aspects of the kingdom that are not yet fulfilled, that will be fulfilled when he returns. Inaugurated eschatology. Big word. You don't have to remember that, right? Like, <laughs> but if you want to, that's cool. You say, oh, I learned something today. Eschatology is a word that is used to describe the study of the end times. And this perspective, the inaugurated eschatology, is probably the most widely recognized view of the Bible's outlook regarding the end times. It indicates tension. It's commonly described as already and not yet. The Bible is filled with allusions to the end times, or as some may say, the last days. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God promised that a seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, the scriptures have always been looking both at the current events of the story as they're revealed in the narrative, as well as what's coming in the future. When we come to Genesis 49, we are thrust into a story that's looking at the already, what's taking place in the story. And yet in verse 1, we're told that 
Jacob is about to talk to them about what's to happen. Your version may say in days to come, but literally translated would be what is to happen in the last days. These pronouncements by Jacob upon his sons indicates what lies ahead for them and for their descendants who are about to enter into the promised land. Remember that as this story is being told, as Moses is telling the story that he's written for the people of Israel, they are about to cross over into the promised land. So they're hearing this and being instructed by this. They're hearing about the blessings that their, that their tribal head received and that flows down to them as they prepare to enter the promised land. These blessings will carry on the promise that God made to Abraham, in which Israel was promised to be a people in a land with a God who would bless them, and that through these blessings, they would be a blessing to all nations. Yahweh will be their God. He will be their God in this land that he's giving them, and all the world will be blessed through them. So as we consider that, there's two main points I want us to think about today. As we look at first the, the, the blessings that Abraham, or I'm sorry, the blessings that Jacob give to, gives to his sons, we're going to look at chapter 49, verses 1 through 28, and we're just going to consider how one's character can impact future generations. How one's character can impact future generations. And then from verse 28 until 50, verse 14, we're going to consider this truth, that one's future destination is determined by present faith. One's future destination is determined by present faith. So, let's look at the blessings as we consider how one's character can impact future generations. Jacob gathers his sons and says, let me tell you what's going to happen in the last days. So even though this blessing is for his sons right there, it's a blessing that is intended to carry on throughout their descendants. They make an immediate impression upon the boys, the men. And yet their descendants are the ones who are hearing this. They're going to be instructed by it. Now let's be clear. Verse 28 tells us that these are blessings. If you look at verse 28, Moses emphasizes this is what their father said to them as he blessed them. Blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. One rabbi stated, If these were blessings, could you imagine Jacob's curses? Some of these things that he says are not, don't really seem to be the kindest things to say about your sons. The fulfillment of these blessings are not yet a complete reality for the sons or for their descendants. Because remember, the descendants are about to go into the land of promise. And many of these blessings relate to what will happen in the land of promise. In these blessings, special attention is given to Joseph. He has the longest uh, blessing giving, given to him. Um, Joseph, remember, was the son that Jacob loved more than the rest. And there's also special attention given to Judah. So we're going to deal with each of these blessings in order. We're going to walk through them, but we're going to save Joseph and Judah for the end uh, uh, as we walk through these. Because if we can get through these, uh, the first, the other ten, pretty quickly. First, we come to Reuben. He was the firstborn. He gave up his birthright by evil actions. He was poised to lead when his father died, yet because he went into his father's uh, wife, Bilhad, he lost. He lost the privilege that belonged to him. Jacob took it from him. Next, we come to Simeon and Levi. These two brothers are mentioned together. They're violent. Remember how they went and avenged their sister Dinah and they killed everyone in Shechem and uh, 
hamstrung all the, the oxen. I mean, they were, <laughs> they were wicked, evil men in Jacob's eyes. So, uh, Jacob removed a blessing from them, it seems. Historically, we're told that Simeon, he kind of disappears. The tribe disappears within Judah because his land allotment was shared with Judah. They don't receive land in the promised land. They just kind of disappear. And Levi, Levi wasn't given a land. They were given specific places they could live within the land, with cities within the land, but they didn't have their own land. They were scattered throughout the tribes. We come to Zebulun. His blessing, to be honest, is a bit tricky to understand. Uh, it's kind of hard to comprehend because some of the things that are said here, uh, we still don't understand exactly how they were fulfilled. Through the territorial allotment of Zebulun, we see that he was landlocked. And yet, Jacob says to Zebulun that he will dwell at the shore of the sea and that he will be a haven for ships, which doesn't really seem to match up with the land that was provided. So it's possible that these uh, prepositions or, or uh, these direction words, instead of saying Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea, it could be translated Zebulun shall dwell toward the shore of the sea, meaning that they're looking towards the trade and they will prosper because of the sea trade where they will welcome this trade as goods pass through. The land was near enough to the coast and to Sidon to be enriched by the seaborne trade. So that's about the best we can understand on that one. It's possible, too, that in the future, uh, Ezekiel kind of brings in some ideas uh, about how the, the land grows and grew, so maybe even beyond uh, will we see these blessings fulfilled. Issachar, verses 14 and 15. Oh, it's a good thing I wasn't reading from the King James Version today. That would have been kind of fun, though. Uh, just, I'll leave that one. He, Issachar is a strong donkey. That's not really something I wanted somebody to say to me. Like, Chris, you're a strong donkey. It just doesn't sound like a really nice thing. I think there's some positive you can take away from it. Issachar would receive a land that would be very rich for agriculture trade. And true to prophecy, Issachar, the tribe of Issachar, inherited the rich farmland of the valley of Jezreel. Through the descendants of Issachar, they were able to live in a land that was pleasant, and yet they would be forced or they would be compelled to do the work of a forced laborer. It's probably a reference to the oppression this tribe would suffer at the hands of their own leaders and foreign invaders in years to come. Dan, Dan becomes a judge, the, the tribe of Dan. There's many judges who come from the tribe of Dan. Samson was one of the greatest judges. He came from this tribe. Yet, Dan had many leaders who worshipped idols, and they brought God's judgment upon the nation. Dan was compared to a snake, the enemy of humanity in the Garden of Eden. The comparison is to an animal with venom so poisonous that it could kill horses. Gad, we're told, would be effective in military struggles. Jacob referenced this tribe's vulnerability based on the location of its land east of the Jordan River, but Jacob praised their tenacity because they would not give up, but rather, even as they were being beaten, they would attack the heels of their oppressors. Asher, I like Asher, I like eating food. And Asher, we're told, isn't this great? Asher, where are we? Verse 20, Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. He's the Gordon Ramsay of the bunch. <laughs> Asher was prophetically foreseen to enjoy prosperity. 
He would produce these royal delicacies that support Israel's prosperity. Naphtali in verse 21, this blessing implies that the other tribes would admire him for his freedom. You see, Naphtali's freedom uh, would have been realized historically in the sense that they didn't have a northern boundary, so they were able to expand freely to whatever extent they were able. Benjamin, the last son mentioned, the youngest son, is blessed to be a warrior. And Benjamin would provide many of Israel's military leaders. His descendants were thus characterized as dangerous, but also those who would provide, provide benefits to the people of Israel. Now, to be honest with you, I don't know how and why Jacob chose to bless the way that he did. I think we, we have to assume that somehow he had direction from the Lord in how to bless his children. And yet we do see that some of these blessings correspond to the character and the nature of his sons, right? The, the choices that are made in the blessing relate to who they are. As I think about these blessings, I'm reminded of uh, an American named Jonathan Edwards. Some of you may have heard of him. Uh, he was a giant in the theological development and teachings in the U.S. And um, he died early uh, due to an experimentation with the smallpox vaccine. He was trying to uh, promote this and, and got too much of the vaccine and ended up passing away. But his legacy of rich teaching and his character lives on. One historian writes of Edwards' influence this way. Although Edwards' life was cut off early, he nevertheless left a permanent mark in America. His theology continues to influence spiritual thinkers, and it is still relevant to our world today. But Edwards did not only change the world forever with his great works of intellect. He also touched the world forever simply because he was a loving father. A 20th century reporter once tracked down 1,400 of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards' descendants. He found that these descendants included 13 university presidents, 100 lawyers, 66 doctors, 65 university professors, two university deans, 80 holders of public office, including three senators and three state governors. 135 of these descendants had published books, and all of them were considered great readers and highly intelligent. Many, many of these descendants were missionaries. The reporter concluded, the Edwards family has cost the country nothing in pauperism, in crime, in hospital stays or asylum service. On the contrary, they represent the highest usefulness. As we come to these blessings and we see how Jacob blessed his sons and how these blessings would carry out through generations, we see that character matters. Character matters in how generations are impacted. Remember, your character now can impact future generations. The choices you make, the, the life that you live, will impact future generations. Well, I said we were going to save Joseph and Judah for our last consideration here. Joseph's blessing didn't have much to do with what he did, although it did to a certain degree. Really, Joseph's blessing was coming from the fact that Jacob loved Joseph more than the rest of his brothers. It's made clear throughout the text that that's how Jacob felt about Joseph. Joseph, uh, Joseph received many blessings, including a double portion. His two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, each became a founder of a tribe in Israel. And it's possible that that is the fulfillment of this double portion of the blessing. 
So Joseph receives the longest blessing, confirming his special standing amongst his brothers. Throughout this blessing, there's different references to God. Look in verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the mighty one of Jacob. There's a reference to the Lord. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. In spite of his brother's hostility toward him, Joseph was sustained by the mighty one of Jacob. Describing Joseph as fruitful might be a recognition of Jacob that Joseph had sons, and one of them was named Ephraim, which means fruitful. And anticipating the future, Jacob prays that Joseph's descendants will experience blessing upon blessing. Blessings that exceed those shown to Abraham and Isaac, even as he was set apart from his sons, from his brothers. Clearly, Jacob loved Joseph. He loved Joseph. And yet, even his love could not or would not kind of put him over to receive what I think is the most significant eternal blessing of the sons. You see, Joseph may have received a double portion of the blessing, but it's Judah who receives the blessing with the greatest eternal significance. All of the brothers' blessings have importance in the land of Israel and for the world, but none of them come close to the blessing that Judah receives. Though Judah did not have the right of the firstborn, Judah has been chosen over all the others to be the royal tribe. Let's reread the, the blessing that Judah received. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Now we'll stop there and just think about this for a moment. What does this say about Judah and his blessing? Well, first, your brothers shall praise you. So there's this leadership aspect, right? The, the brothers praise him. They, they recognize that there's something great with Judah. His hand shall be on the neck of his enemies. It's the picture of conquering and putting down others, that he is a strong conqueror. And notice the third part here in the, the first verse, of, or the first part of chapter 8, or the third part of verse 8. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. That's interesting, isn't it? Because if we go back to Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, he had these dreams that all of his brothers and even his mom and his dad were going to bow down before him. And yet in this blessing, Jacob says, Judah, all your brothers will bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. He's a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He's grown up. He's strong. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? No one wants to stir up a lion when a lion is ready to pounce. You want them to ignore you, but no, no. There's strength. There is vigor with Judah. The scepter, even there, that word speaks to royalty, to, to kingship, right? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Now, depending on the translation that you may read, it may say that it may not, uh, the, that it may not depart from his loins, 
the, the idea here is that the descendants, right? Uh, between his feet is a euphemism that the, the scepter and the, and the rod, uh, the staff of the king of the royal lineage will go through the tribe of Judah. And then you get to this interesting little phrase, the ESV translates it this way, until tribute comes to him. Until tribute comes to him. It's been a challenge for translators over the years on how best to translate this. Sometimes it gets translated simply as Shiloh comes or uh, because they don't know what to do with that word, so they think maybe Shiloh is a proper name. But uh, some of the best work recently uh, has been able to decipher that it's really what it's saying is, is that the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until it comes to the one to whom it belongs. Until it comes to the one to whom it belongs. So this royal lineage belongs to Judah, and yet Jacob foresees that there is one who will come that will even be ruler above all of Judah. There is one who will receive this. And to him, this one who comes, right? The one that they're waiting for, when he comes, he'll receive the scepter, he'll receive the staff, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Notice, it's peoples, plural. It's not singular, it's plural. You see, you might be reading this as an Israelite about to go into the land, and you see that this one would receive the, the staff and the rod, uh, the scepter and the, and the staff, and, and you would think, okay, now all of Israel is going to obey this king, all the people. No, 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 Jacob says peoples. It is an indication that it's not just Israel that will obey him. It's an indication that all the peoples of the world will obey him, will be expected to obey him. There is something about the original promise to Abraham of land and people that the nations will be blessed through Abraham. And he's speaking that the one who comes through Judah will be the one to whom all the nations obey. It's a startling description of what happens here. And then in verse 11, we're told that this one who comes will bind his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He's washed his garment in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Well, what is this all about? Well, this is a picture that Jacob is painting of the prosperity, the prosperity that comes in the reign of this royal king. When he says that he binds his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, what he's, the picture he's painting here is that there is such a great harvest, there's such a great harvest that even the best vines are so common that he doesn't have to look for like junk, but he can use the best. That there's such an abundance that he can use the best vines to tether his donkey. And not only are the vines common, but the wine that comes from the fruit of the vine is so common and so exceptional that uh, he uses that wine as wash water. It's a symbol of prosperity, a symbol of great increase. I want you to think about something. If you've been around church long enough, you might, there might be some images or some ideas that are already popping into your head, but I want you to see how this blessing of, of Judah, how he is the royal tribe, how this is fulfilled in Christ, how, how we see that Christ coming through this line is the one to whom the scepter and the staff belong. Think about this image. Jesus is called, he's called the Lion of Judah in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. John says, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Think also of being king, uh, being the king who has destroyed his enemies. And think about Christ on the cross and how on the cross he overcame sin and he was buried. And it seems as though he was defeated by death and yet he overcame death. He put death to death in his resurrection. Think also about the, the pictures of this prosperity. Think about the image of Jesus in the Gospel of John. The first miracle he produces is what? It's turning water into wine. But it's not just any wine. He, he turns the water into wine that is so good that the host that the host is accused of saving the best wine for last. And you're not supposed to do that. And yet Jesus was showing, no, 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 this is, this is good. There's something in his miracle that shows who he is, that he is this promised one in the line of Judah. Remember on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode a donkey as he entered into Jerusalem. And verse 11 tells us that he'll have a donkey. Think about the Lord's Supper that he instituted the night that he was betrayed. One of the elements that he used was wine, representing his blood. And it is with his blood that he would wash the sins of his followers away, that he would provide clean garments, garments of righteousness for those who would receive him as Lord and Savior. In his kingdom, there will be forgiveness and reconciliation and all of these blessings bestowed upon his followers. There will be prosperity, there will be peace, and there will be joy. Jesus will be praised by all peoples because Jesus is not just a king for the people of Israel, but Jesus is a royal king, a global king, an eternal king for all the peoples. To him belong the scepter and the staff. To him belongs all worship and praise. He willingly laid down his life. He willingly poured out his blood to provide a way for us to be reconciled to the Father. You see, the blessing here of Judah paved the way for the seed of the woman who was, that was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The promises to Abraham were fulfilled through Judah with the arrival of Christ that all nations would be blessed through him. Why did Judah get this blessing? Judah was by far not a righteous person. He had his flaws, and that's putting it nicely. He had a lot of skeletons in the closet. But we saw throughout the story that there was a change. There was a change in Judah's life, a time where he publicly repented and owned his sin. And instead of putting himself before others, he began to put others before himself. There was life change. There was repentance. He even offered himself as a sacrifice in place of his brothers when there was a question about who would go down to Egypt and what would happen if they couldn't all come back. I think that Judah received the blessing that he received from Jacob because of his character, because of the change of life and who he had become as he turned from himself and he turned to Yahweh. Your character will impact future generations. Well, let's consider how our future destination is determined by our present faith. Verse 29, we're told that Jacob commanded his sons and said, I am to be gathered with my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite. And following this, we see that Jacob passes away. And as he passes away, there's mourning for him. 
And then Joseph and his brothers and a cohort from Egypt go and take him and bury him in the land with his forefathers and with his wife. And what we see here is a picture of the already, not yet. The man Israel is buried in the land promised to Israel, and yet the nation of Israel is not yet in the land that was promised to them. Here in this story of the death and the burial of Jacob is focus on God's faithfulness. His faithfulness in his promise of a land to be given to these people. And the hope that they would eventually return to that land. In later stories, we see the fulfillment of this promise as Israel returns to the land. Even as the Israelites hear this story, they are ready to enter into the land. They see that the Father is faithful to his promises. How do you see the Father being faithful to his promises to you today? Where is he leading you? How is he honoring his faithfulness to you? Jacob gives his sons instructions about his burial. As he lay dying, he specified the place where he was to be buried. Verse 30 uh, mentions specifically that uh, he's, well, it doesn't tell us in verse 30, but later it tells us that he's referring specifically to the place in Machpelah. It was a burial plot that Abraham purchased way back in chapter 23. And even though Jacob had already made a request similar to this, he wanted to specify more clearly, make sure you do this. He wanted to be buried with Abraham. He wanted to be buried with Sarah, with Isaac and Rebekah and with Leah. You see, he wanted to be in the land that was promised to him. The promise that Jacob's seed, that his sons would live in peace in the land that was promised to Abraham and Isaac, this is the promise he was trusting in. That God would fulfill what he said he would do. This instruction to Jacob's sons shows that Jacob had a faith that persevered to the end. And with these instructions, we're told that he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Something about being in a state of death and yet reunited with his people. So, even though this burial episode, this preparation for burying Jacob in the land may make us think about something that happens in the past. It actually projects to a future faith. The future that is secured by God and his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You see, in this story, even though they're looking back at the death of Jacob, they can look beyond the grave, they can look beyond death, and they can see a future that awaits with a faithful God. And even in the small bits of the story, they can see that as they are reading the story for the first time and about to go into the land of Canaan to take the promised land, who, who does Moses say is with them as Joseph goes to the promised land and taking the body of his father? We're told that they are bearing the gifts of Egypt. And that they're carrying Joseph's body in, Egyptian, in an Egyptian sarcophagus as they go. It kind of foreshadows what happens as Israel leaves Egypt and goes to claim the promised land many years later. You see, for us as Christians, Jacob's confidence in the future should be familiar to us. We understand Joseph's mourning over his father. We understand the mourning and the sadness that comes with losing someone you love. But we also are able to look at the future and rejoice in what is promised to us. We can see a kingdom that is beyond the grave. 
So, as Christians, we do not mourn as one who does not, who do not have hope, but we mourn as those with a great hope. We are relieved from anxiety about the future because we know that we are promised a future in Christ and even in Christ, a resurrection. The author of Hebrews points to this. In Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8, we read that by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah received her, uh, herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things that were promised, but having seen them by faith and greeted them from afar, have acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Skip down to verse 21, and we read, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Where is your faith? Is your faith in Christ and the promises that he's made for you? Do you look to the future? Do you look to this city that we're promised to inhabit as the kingdom of our God, the kingdom of our Christ? Are you looking to that? Are you looking to the future resurrection that we're promised when we are joined together with our Savior? We should be looking to Him. Now, there's a couple of things I need to say culturally here, and I know I'm going long, so I apologize, but it's too rich of a passage. There's some cultural tension in this passage as Jacob is embalmed according to Egyptian burial traditions. It's not how the Jewish people, the Israelites, would normally bury their dead. They would normally immediately bury their dead and mourn, and, but in Egypt they would embalm. And so this had to be a source of conflict. And I know many of you may be going through a bit of conflict right now, considering that today and would be something that... Uh, is celebrated the Chengmeng. And many Christians from a Chinese background may experience some challenges in how do they participate in this tradition, in this ceremony. Obviously, I'm not a, Christ, I'm not a Chinese background person, right? So I've, I've never had to celebrate this day. I've never dealt with the familial pressure to conform to a particular set of traditions or expectations. So I can't speak from experience about how someone who experiences those challenges must address them. I can't do that. But uh, I did find somebody who is a Chinese uh, background Christian who has some really interesting thoughts about this. Uh, the, the author Ai Ching Thomas, uh, she's actually a, a Malaysian. And uh, she lives, I believe, in Singapore now. And she's written a book called Jesus, The Path to Human Flourishing. And uh, she addresses, you know, different ideas about how a a Chinese background believer can uh, live out the gospel and address certain ideas of human flourishing according to Confucius. In a YouTube video series called Canto Sense, Canto Sense, 
uh, she provides some suggestions about how Christians can uphold the good things about Qingming, uh, the celebration Qingming, without compromising their faith. She said to remember that Qingming is about ancestors and spirituality. So you can use this opportunity to speak to your family members about spiritual truths, even the hope of a resurrection. Remember that in this ceremony, you're honoring your parents or grandparents or other ancestors. And honoring your parents and those who've gone before you is a command of God to show them honor and respect. So it's good to do this. But worship of anyone but God is forbidden. So you ought to avoid practices that signify worship, whether that would be burning joysticks or actually praying to someone other than God. You can show honor by cleaning the gravesite. You can show honor and respect by bringing a potted plant or flowers. You can participate in ways that show you're not abandoning your familial responsibility, but is also faithful to the spiritual realities of being in Christ. You can offer a prayer of thanksgiving, uh, thanksgiving on behalf of those who have passed away, but try to avoid burning hell money or other items that would be burned that we know really make no difference in the afterlife. We must focus on how the life that was lived blessed those who are still alive. Finally, she says, remain calm when tensions arise. And some of you know that tensions will rise. If you're berated by family members, remain calm. Remember your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was silent before his accusers. Remain calm and quiet. Arguing during such a time will not win anyone to a biblical understanding of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the hope that we have in him. I hope those are helpful for you as you may face some challenges even today. We talked about the already, the not yet. And it's clear that today, as Christians, we have not yet received everything that has been made, that has been promised to us, and yet we know that Christ has accomplished all these things. Consider Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, where we are told that we are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. When I look around, I see us seated in a room on the ninth floor of Echo City in the office of Triune. I don't see us seated there, and yet Ephesians speaks of us as seating there already. We don't experience this truth currently, but we can trust that we will. In a few moments, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. One of the directions that we look when we celebrate the Lord's Supper is we look to the future when Christ will return and gather his people to himself in his fully realized kingdom. We look in that direction, knowing that even though it's already been won, it's been promised, it already happened, it's not yet completely realized. Just as Israel was buried in the land, Israel was not yet in the land. We as Christians have received a promise of a future kingdom, and we're in that kingdom as we gather together. We are representatives and embassy of that kingdom, and yet we have not seen the kingdom fully realized. We can rest in these promises just as the Israelites were able to rest in the promise because they knew their God was faithful. So, wherever you may find yourself today, I want you to remember this. However you are today is not how you will be. If you're a believer, you have the promise of a resurrected body, a resurrected life. You will be transformed. You are not today what you will be. And that's in the, big, the biggest sense possible. But you know what? Even day to day, you're being renewed. As you fellowship with other believers, as you fellowship with the Lord, as you read the scriptures, as you pray, you're being transformed day to day. So let me encourage you to look to the promises of God. Look to Him. Look to Him as He guides you through your day-to-day -day decisions. 
your day-to-day interactions. Relate to others in light of these eternal truths. Persuade others of the significance of the eternal realities that are true in Christ. Remember, He is coming as King and as Judge. And as we are in this already, we know the not yet will one day come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Sustain us by your love and your presence and your grace so that we will be everything that you intend for us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.